We're going to use our Bible today, so I figured I probably ought to grab that. I have a serious question for you. Do you know anything about grief or pain? Do you know anything about sadness? Has your life ever been turned upside down on its head? Maybe you saw it coming. Maybe you didn't see it coming at all. Have you ever been filled with so much distress to the point that it is affecting you physically? You've got tears, maybe fatigue, anxiety, sleeplessness. Maybe you've experienced that and you've just thought to yourself, if you will ever come out of that, if there's ever going to be any kind of recovery from that, If you've lived any length of time, I'm guessing that you have experienced that, and honestly, I'm confident that there are people in here right now that are experiencing that, that are in the middle of that, that are are somewhere in that process, that there is a weight that is on you about something that's going on in your life. Well, this account of what takes place with Jesus in Gethsemane has something to say to you. Not the least of which, I'll just say at the outset, that you are not alone. You have not been abandoned. If you are a child of God, then he is by your side and not as some passive observer. He's there as a doting father that is going to get you through it, that is helping you through it. And I think what is important for you to remember is that whatever it is that you either have experienced or are experiencing right now is not by chance. It is not by accident that you have experienced what you've experienced or that you are in the middle of it right now. And this account that we're going to look at with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane tells you how you are to respond. And this is going to sound overly simplistic, but the answer, I'll tell you right up front, because it's biblical, the answer is prayer. The answer is prayer. See, in this church, we do not subscribe to the ungodly and unbiblical notion, the false teaching that God never wants you to experience pain or to experience loss. You will not find that in the Bible. To make that claim is to say something about Jesus himself, is to say something about Paul, is to say something uh, negative about them and basically about every one of the apostles and uh, dozens or hundreds of other characters within the Bible that demonstrated um, faithfulness, and yet they suffered so much. We We do not teach that because it is not biblical. In this church, we acknowledge that there are some people that have to experience an extremely difficult road. There are people maybe in here that have had an entire life of pain, of suffering, and of loss, and it's not a mistake. 
God didn't, it didn't accidentally happen to you. You didn't draw the wrong card. This is the life that God has given to you. Instead of looking at all of those circumstances and saying, well, what did I do wrong? Um, Why me? Instead, what we need to do is evaluate, okay, this is where God has me. And if this is truly what God has orchestrated in my life, and even if I'll never truly know all of the reasons that these things are happening to me, here's the one thing that I have to know. What do I do about it? What should my response be? And the best thing that we can do is to look at Jesus Christ and say, what did he do when he was in a time of crisis? And the answer is that he prayed. In his example, we see that there was a time for him to offer a petition in his prayer. He demonstrated that there was a time to ask for protection, and there is a time to focus on and pray for perseverance. Now, as we've progressed through the the Gospel of Mark and we've watched uh, Jesus' ministry unfold throughout Galilee, and now as it's um, gone all the way to Jerusalem, and he is about to enter into the Passion We've seen a recurring phrase. I'm sure it won't be lost on you. It won't be unfamiliar. But the very first time was when Jesus was at the wedding in Cana. And remember, they ran out of wine. And then his mother comes to him and wants him to fix the problem, right? He's like, ah! She says, hey, we need your help. And Jesus' response to her, his initial response was, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Later, when Jesus is teaching in the temple, the religious leaders weren't too happy about what he was teaching. They wanted to arrest him. But they didn't arrest him because it says, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. And then later yet, the intensity kind of ramps up even more. And in a public setting in the temple, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders to their face you know they wanted to arrest him and do a whole lot more. And it says that they did not because his hour had not come. So we have this repeated phrase of what did not happen because his hour did not come. Now here he is. All of that has changed. His hour for arrest and all the events that then line up, as soon as that arrest happens, Everything else just falls to dominoes. Everything else falls into place immediately after that. And Jesus knows that. All of those things are imminent. The time is, in fact, now at hand. They've completed the Passover meal. Uh, They've left the city. They're headed back in the general direction of uh, where they had been staying on the Mount of Olives. And when Jesus stops at this uh, familiar place. Now, we know that the place is familiar for one reason, at its face, is we're given the name, Gethsemane. And the reason that that's a little bit unique is that this isn't like the official name of this location. They didn't show up, and there's not a sign hanging there that says, Welcome to Gethsemane Garden, 
all right? This is not, this is just happens to be a garden. In fact, it's believed that there, it's probably a walled garden. And the word Gethsemane is just Hebrew for olive press. There's nothing special about that term other than it's likely a term that was used like within the group. This is an area that they passed by regularly. It's an area that the, Jesus met with his disciples regularly. It's an area that they used as collectively, they, their particular group, as a prayer garden. So for them, they, you know, they called it, hey, go to Gethsemane. It's a place that they would frequent uh, with regularity. And we know that this is the case because that's exactly where Judas found him. That was all part of the plan. In fact, in John 18, verse 2, it reads, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So this is just a, a place of familiarity. And so Jesus, now that they've left They've participated in the Passover. They've left. They're heading out of town. They're headed back towards the Mount of Olives. I would assume that what the disciples believe is that they're just going to land eventually right back to Bethany where they've been going each night afterwards. Jesus knows different. He says, we need to stop. Let's stop at where our normal place is right here at Gethsemane for uh, in this garden here. And just as it's normal for him to meet there with his disciples, that's what he's doing now. He is there with his disciples. He asks them to all just stay where they are, with the exception of three, Peter, James, and John. And frankly, why wouldn't he take those three with him? You know, they're kind of his closest companions, frequently referred to as kind of the inner circle but also, why wouldn't he want to take, knowing what he's about to do and what he's going to pray about, why wouldn't he choose those three to be especially close to him? Because after all, they made very public assurances about what they would do. Remember just a couple of chapters back, after James and John, actually it was their mama that went to, to, to Jesus to ask for special recognition uh, for James and John to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand. And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, are you going to endure what I'm going to endure? And they said, oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, check that box. If, if you're going to go through it, we'll go through it. No problem. That's Pete's translation, by the way. And so they made this public assurance, so this is in front of everybody, that they would be willing to go through what Jesus went through. Well, and then as far as Peter... The most recent thing that we, the most recent quote that we have recorded by Peter is just a few verses earlier in Mark 14. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. So why in heaven's name would you not want to take these three with you after they've made such bold claims publicly about how strong they're going to be for the sake of Christ? Now, Jesus is able to put all those promises to the test. And really, even the test is a pretty, he sets the bar pretty low. Because first, he lays out how serious the situation is. He says in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
He's, he's communicating to these men whom he's chosen. They're his apostles, and even among the apostles, he's the ones he seems to be closest to, and he, he pours his heart out to these men. My soul is so sorrowful, I could almost die. Just do this one thing. Remain here and watch. Just join me. Just stick with me. Just right here. Be close. Stay awake. Remain alert. They had one job. And of course, what takes place on the heels of this are the excruciating details of Jesus's experience in that garden. Now, I don't know if you have ever thought about this question, but why do you suppose this episode in the garden, they call Gethsemane, this, this group of them, even takes place. Like, why didn't God arrange for Jesus to be arrested in Jerusalem? Or as he finishes the Passover meal and all the importance uh, that that carries and the, the symbolism and the fulfillment that goes on with him participating in that Passover meal and the the sacrificial lamb and all that kind of thing, and he's leaving. Why, why wasn't he met on the road right there by Judas and the thugs that would accompany him to arrest him and then take him off the trial, and then the crucifixion would take place after that? After all, isn't the sacrifice really the main thing? I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't that the point? Why do we have to be... Why is there this horrendous scene of preparation prior to all of those things happening? And really, if we're asking, not only why does it have to take place, but if it does have to take place, why do we have to know about it? Why does it need to be recorded, this, this scene, this pain that Jesus goes through that leads up to in this preparation for the sacrifice? Well, at a minimum, Peter, James, and John were there to serve as a witness of Jesus's painful preparation so that we too would have some sense of how great of a sacrifice that this was. This is helpful for us to see the pain that Jesus is bearing, to have some idea that within his humanity, it, it was a weight that was almost too much to bear. To use his word, he is sorrowful to the point of death. And additionally, it helps us to understand the importance of the voluntary nature of what Jesus is doing. That in spite of how difficult it was for him, that he was still choosing to follow through. In John 10, verses 17 and 18, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So we see this voluntary sense of this, 
of this thing. It isn't just that Jesus left the Passover and then he's arrested. No, we see that there is a moment, a culmination of the emotion that he has that everything in him says, I don't want to do this. And yet, in spite of that, he chooses to follow through with it. And we know as well that in this voluntary act that this was real grief. This, this was the deepest form of genuine grief. You know, in the past predictions of Jesus' death, you know, he does it three different times. He tells his disciples that he's going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and that he's going to die. But every time, this is just kind of a curious thing, every time he talks about it, it's always in the third person. You know, he says something to the effect of, the son of man must suffer and die. There's no third person in this part right here. This is a first person, personal, intimate account of what it is that he's experiencing. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And, and shortly after that, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, remove this cup from me. And this fell on the ground. He didn't stumble. He is throwing himself down on the ground. You know, the customary practice for the Jew to pray was to pray standing up. That was the normal way that a Jew would pray to God, would be to, would be to stand up. And for a Jew to be prostrate when he prayed would be an absolutely extreme circumstance. It was not normal at all. Jesus throws himself down before he prays to God, and then you add to that the fact of his request itself that he actually asks the Father that he might not have to endure what is about to follow. The fact that we're not spared the details of all of this is absolutely to our benefit. Seeing the Savior in that pain and discovering how he responds to it reveals truths to us. It helps us identify. We can't possibly identify with the, the level of pain that he was going through, but we certainly experience loss. We experience deep grief. So to be able to see what he does about it is helpful for us. And one of the things that we learn from it, and I think is very, it's, it's helpful for us in our own experience and to make sure that we don't kind of apply this to anyone else, which is that being in great distress is not a sin. The fact that you are deeply grieved or that you are experiencing intense distress is not in and of itself sinful. Being troubled and even humbly asking God for relief, petitioning him that he might be willing to take it away, is not inappropriate. It's not inherently sinful to feel that way or to make that request. In fact, I would not only say that it's not sinful, I would even go so far as to say there is no loss of dignity for the Christian to feel that way and to make that request. You're not weak because 
you're hurting so much. You're not soft because you actually asked God if he would be willing to take it away. Did you know, do you realize that Jesus, besides going a little bit farther, besides throwing himself down to pray to God, he was wailing when he had this prayer? In Hebrews 5, verse 7, in referring to this circumstance, it reads, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He threw himself down. And his prayers were delivered with loud cries and with tears. Have you been there? So deeply grieved that you throw yourself down and that your prayer is accompanied with tears and loud cries? Well, if it's okay for Jesus, I would submit that it's okay for his children now. There is a time to petition God in prayer that the calamity might be taken away. Now, even so, what's important is how Jesus did that. He demonstrated humility both physically and verbally. So again, it's important that we look at the example that Jesus used when he was in this moment of crisis. He took a posture of humility and he called to the Father in intimate terms. In verse 36, it says, and he said, Abba, Father. Now, perhaps you've heard before people say Abba is like a, it's like a child saying Daddy. I, I really don't think that that's a good, um, yes, it, it demonstrates a level of, an increased level of intimacy. But what we want to, be sure, uh, want to be clear about is that Jesus was not being childish in his reference to the Father. There's no childishness there. He approached him as one who has an intimate relationship. Picture a servant going to a master that humbly goes before him and even genuflects and makes a request, but then adds to the request, Father. That, if you see that scene, it changes the tone of everything. A knight before a king who goes and acknowledges the authority of the king and lays a heartfelt request to the king and then changes his tone and says, Father. It's that same sense of intimacy that Jesus is coming before God the Father and laying this request, and he says, Abba, Father. And this whole idea of using that kind of term was unheard of among the Jews. They used the term Abba when they, in their familial relationship. That, that was a term of intimacy between a child and a father, but you would never use that in a prayer to God. That, that's, that's cavalier to say something of that nature. And so, again, Jesus is teaching as he's, as he's praying to the Father. And as a result, we end up seeing other uh, scriptures authored by Paul where he refers to God as Abba, Father. There is a time and a place. We have a relationship that has a level of intimacy that allows us to come to him and not just acknowledge his authority, but also to say, oh, Father. And then, of course, Jesus, in addition to the address of Abba, Father, 
adds, all things are possible for you. He acknowledges entirely that God has the power to do this. He can choose to change the circumstances. So Jesus comes before him physically in in a posture of humility. He comes before him intimately in how he addresses the Father, and then he also addresses uh, his authority and the fact that the Father can do all things. All things are possible before you. All of that precedes the actual request. And then we know that his request was heard from the uh, reference that I just read out of Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 that says he was heard because of his reverence. This continues to teach us, to give us a framework of how it is that we even bring our petitions before God. It's okay to be in deep grief. It's okay to, to petition our God that he might be willing to take it away. We should do it with respect. We should do it out of humility. We should acknowledge that he has the power to do it so that we too might be heard because of our reverence. Now, another aspect of this whole thing is, you know, what would motivate Jesus to even make this request? Why why is he doing this? If he is divine, if he is fully God, in addition to being human and fully man, you know, to put it crudely, why didn't he take it like a man? Why is he making such a big scene about all of this? Well, it certainly wasn't the beating that was going to take place. Once the arrest starts and all these things start to happen, it wasn't the beating that would drive him to this. It wasn't the, uh, the trial and the public humiliation and people chanting to crucify him that would drive him to this. It wasn't even the fact that he was going to be put on a cross and that he was going to be killed that would drive him to this. There was something much greater that was taking place. You know, if, if you just survey biblical history and you identify the, 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 the moments of greatest, of the most uh, intense affliction, you know, Abraham preparing to sacrifice his own son and, you know, the weight that that must have been. Um, when we look at King David and, and he saw or he heard that his son Absalom was killed and, it's, and it talks about the reaction that he had or any number of the circumstances that led to all of the Psalms of lament where the psalmist pours out his heart and with all of this pain and all of this grief, any of those things, any of those circumstances that led to that amount of distress does not even touch what Jesus was experiencing. And the reason is, if we look at his request, he says, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. In fact, uh, prior to that, it's, uh, it's not in quotes because it's indirect speech. Uh, he asked if it were possible, if the hour might pass, and then he's quoted as saying, remove this cup from me. The cup that's being asked to be removed, the cup that Jesus is referring to, can be found in a couple of places. One of them is from Psalm 60. 
starting at verse 1, it says, Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. And in verse 3, you have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. The cup that's being referred to is the anger of God that is poured out on the judgment for sin. It's being referred to as a drink that makes him stagger. And then additionally, in Isaiah 51 and verse 17, it says, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. That's that same cup. That is what Jesus is pouring his heart out over. He's asking his Abba Father not to pour out, if it's possible that the hour might pass and that the cup might be removed, the cup of his wrath, that is poured out because of our sins. And in the face of this great burden, and in his humanity, he petitions the Father, asking that it might be removed. But in the same breath, in the same breath of this request, he adds, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus subordinated his human desires to the will of the Father. Jesus subordinated his human desires to the will of the Father. That is the key to this. Jesus submitted, he subordinated his personal desires to the will of the Father. To suffer is not an automatic sign of judgment. To ask God to take it away is not sinful, but the request must at all times be made with the understanding that his divine will trumps our earthly one. In addition to a time for petition, there is also a time for, to focus on protection. So Jesus emerges from this time of prayer, of throwing himself down before the Father. Verse 37, it says, And he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? So he comes out. He, he's checking on his closest disciples. And despite telling them that he was sorrowful to the point of death, and despite hearing their Messiah wailing, they were awake long enough to hear this going on. He found them asleep. And then Jesus focuses his attention on what basically is the leader of the apostles, right? Even though the others were behind, even though there were three that he invited, his comments were addressed directly at Peter. Simon, are you asleep? He focused his attention on the one with the biggest mouth. Jesus' request then was 
could you not watch one hour? And then verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus' request was not that they are on the watch out for Judas, that, hey, he's going to be coming down the road at some point. I need you to look for him. He's telling them to watch and to pray. It was time to spend t- It was time for them to be praying about what was going on. It was time for them to be pr- praying for protection from the evil one. Even in his greatest pain, as Jesus was going through this supreme crisis, he's looking out for his own disciples and telling them to watch and pray that they, not for his benefit, but that they would not enter into temptation. He's communicating, Peter, there are forces at work right now that want to destroy you. I am on the precipice. This this wrath, this cup that I am going to have to take is imminent, and you are sleeping. This moment of crisis, and you are sleeping. While mental assent and a willing heart Those are good things, right? You agree with what the Bible says, and you have a heart that says, yeah, I'm I'm all for it. And then to take a nap makes absolutely no sense. In times of crisis, we must act, and that action takes the form of prayer, and we need to pray that God would protect us. Prayer isn't just a therapeutic exercise. We don't, it's not chicken soup for the soul, all right? You may be in great distress, and you may be in desperate need of the kind of peace that only the Holy Spirit can bring. But the purpose of prayer is not just an exercise to make you feel better and to just kind of get it out. Prayer matters. It matters in the time of petition and the time of protection. In fact, in Mark 13, just a page back, when we were going through um, um, all of what was going on at the Olivet Discourse, In Mark 13 and at uh, verse 18 in that instruction, Jesus says, pray that it may not happen in winter. Why does Jesus bother saying that if prayer does not matter? He's telling them to pray that it may not happen in winter. And then he goes on throughout the account towards the end of it to say at least three different times that they're supposed to be on guard, to keep awake, therefore stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come. And then at the end again, and I, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And this whole idea of staying awake is to be engaged in prayer, to be alert, to be going before the throne of God. He tells them as well when he gives his own example of how it is that we are to pray. You know what he says in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We are supposed to be about praying for protection from the evil one. Our physical engagement in prayer has supernatural divine consequences. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Now, the fact that Jesus pours his heart out like this and then comes back and finds his these three guys, his closest one sleeping, as if that isn't bad enough. It happens three times. He goes back, prays again, same words, makes the request again, checks on them, asleep. Goes back, 
prays the same words again, returns to find his disciples again asleep. In fact, after he finds them asleep, they're speechless. They've got no defense. They have nothing. They don't even say anything. There's, there's, There's nothing that they can say. In verse 40, it says, And again he came and found them sleepy, sleeping, and their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. They've got no excuse. So after making the petition to the Father and directing the disciples to seek protection, we see now that it was time for perseverance. He woke them up this third time and rebuked them, saying, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? He's not happy. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So when he said, when he woke them up and rebuked them, and After giving the petition appropriately to the Father, what happens when he says, it is enough, let us be going, he acknowledges that the Father had answered. And the answer was no. The answer was no. The cup will not be removed. Not only would the cup not be removed, the hour has come, and not one single solitary step of the road to the cross was going to be skipped. Not one. The answer was no. He will be arrested. He will be put on public trial. He will be illegitimately found guilty. He will be beaten. He will be humiliated. He will drink the cup of the Father's wrath down to its very dregs. The answer was no. The hour will not pass. The cup will not be removed. This was the time for perseverance. And he says, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So we see Jesus, after he, he got that answer, after he knew the answer, he embraced the Father's will. Let us be going. He embraced the Father's will. So he didn't just kind of theologically or mentally within his prayer say, Lord, not, you know, verbally just say, well, Lord, not my will, your will be done. He, he lives that out when he says, it is enough, let us be going. He truly demonstrated that he submitted his will to the Father's and put it into action. Now, I want to actually give you six points of application. The first one is to the unbeliever, and I'm just going to be blunt, okay? If you have not repented of your sin and placed your faith in the life, death, resurrection to glory of Jesus Christ, the cup of wrath that's being referred to here was not for you, that Jesus drank, is not for you. You're going to take your own. You're going to get the wrath that righteously and legitimately comes to you. 
you will endure the wrath on your own, and it will be a legitimate ruling of guilt. The only way to avoid that is through repentance and faith. You must repent of your sin and place your faith entirely on this event that Jesus, that's about to take place in this account with Jesus. Now for my believers, I want to point a few things out. A couple of these may not have been obvious at the time, but I, I just think they're worth mentioning. One of them is believers should not seek out persecution or martyrdom. This, that shouldn't be a goal of yours. Now, make no mistake, if you are faced with it, you know, if, if there's some scenario where your faith is being put to the test, you have, no, you have no other option. You must stand on the truth of the word of God and not be ashamed of it. But we also don't go seeking to be made a martyr. Jesus wasn't looking for this to happen. What he was looking to do was to obey the will of the Father. And that's the way that it worked out. And if God has in his will for you to be faced with that kind of decision that causes you great persecution or even your life, then God help you stand and you will be rewarded for it. But there is nothing in here, and I think that this is a good example of the fact that we are not instructed to somehow seek, seek out persecution and martyrdom. Another thing... A reminder is don't make glib assertions about how strong your faith is. Be careful, whether you say it out loud or you think it to yourself, about how, how you'll take a stand. Look at these cats. All they had to do originally was stay awake, and they couldn't do it. And we need to, to take caution about making these claims about ourselves as well. Fourth thing, if you are deeply grieved, if that is your lot right now in life, if you are deeply grieved, it's okay. It is not inherently sinful, nor does it remove your dignity as a Christian. You may humbly ask God to remove this trial from you as long as you are prepared to submit your desires to the sovereign and perfect will of God. You have to be able to say, not my will, but yours be done, and to mean it. In other words, within your prayer of petition, you have to understand and acknowledge the answer may be no. Just the fact that you don't get the answer you're praying for does not mean that God is not listening. It might be that he is listening to you quite closely because you are bringing that to him with reverence, just like it said in Hebrews, but the answer is no. That is absolutely a possibility, and you need to be prepared to praise God for that. Fifth, pray for God's protection from your own sinful desires and from the adversary. Accept the admonition that Jesus was given. Learn from that admonition that Jesus was giving to his own disciples. Watch and pray. Do this for yourself. You're not only praying and petitioning the Lord that he might lighten the load or that he might take it away somehow, but pray that he might protect you from 
the temptations that the adversary would want to lay on you. Any number of of, of discontent, of self-pity. Pray that the Lord would protect you from these things. Sixth, at some point, you must be prepared to say, it is enough, and actually acknowledge that the hour is not going to pass. Instead of limiting your prayer to the request of relief, or even including protection, add to your prayer the strength to persevere. Ask God to strengthen you. If he has you going through the whole thing, if that is his will, then may he give you the strength, the right attitude to persevere through it, to see it through to the very end so that he receives the glory for your response to the position, to the circumstances that he has orchestrated for you. Now, I want to make sure that I end with hope. And I need to read to you out of, in fact, go ahead and turn, if you can grab your Bible there, and turn to Psalm 42. And in Psalm 42, this is, by the way, one, the reason we sang our, uh, that last song there, as the deer. We can get there. Psalm 42, the first, I'm going to start with the first five verses right here. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival, and then verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist here is pouring his heart out, talking about how his heart pants for God, like a deer pants for flowing streams, and then talks about the tears that have been his food, the taunts that he has received for being uh, dedicated to Yahweh, and then he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And then go down in the same psalm to verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Does this sound familiar? Does Jesus not going to say this? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You realize that only the Christian, only the Christian can do this. Even 
When God says no to allowing the hour to pass and the cup to pass, even when he says no, the Christian has hope. We shall praise him. He is our salvation and he is our God. We have hope in turmoil. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for giving us a window into the pain that Jesus and his humanity experienced. Thank you that we could learn from it. Thank you. We, we rejoice in the hand that you've dealt us. We rejoice in the circumstances you've given us. Not with a plastic smile plastered on our face, but because we have hope and we know, in fact, Lord, that there is hope in turmoil. You are our salvation, and you are our God. Not our will, but yours be done. In Jesus' name, amen.